Romans. I don't think that I'll ever get to the point where I don't like to say Romans. Whether I've got a Johnny Cash voice or not. Um, Romans. Anybody ever seen <clears throat> magazines, web articles, materials from Eat This, Not That? You know what I'm talking about? Anybody seen that? What they do is they destroy every notion you have of enjoying any good food and tell you to eat garbage instead. They'll take a beautiful picture of like a Pizza Hut pan pizza that the pepperoni is curled up perfectly and burnt around the edges with a little pool of grease sitting in it. It's perfect. Huh? You know, that's, that's the treasure right there. <clears throat> and they'll say, don't eat that because it's got 6,000 calories and 428 grams of fat and all these carbs. Don't eat that. and Don't eat this. Instead, eat that. Like some sprout crust vegetable pizza with no sauce and no cheese and no taste because that's good for you. Eat this, not that. Now, that may be a little overdramatic, but really that's how I feel when I see it. But they've built a pretty big thing here. They've been going for quite a few years, multi-million dollar business, and they've got books and web articles and uh, apps and all this stuff. So you might want to look into it if you're into that kind of thing. I'm not, but if you want to, that's fine. But the concept of eat this, not that, speaks to something that I think is very valid to what we're looking at this morning in the book of Romans as we are in our, as we are in our um, 0.5 of our outline, which is application and how, how practical have chapters 12 and 13 been so far. I mean, it's like every verse is an application point. I mean, seriously, that's what it feels like. So we're in application, the implications of being right with God, how to live now that you know that you're right with God. Eat this, not that. And what we're going to look at this morning is live this way, not this way. I think it was Aristotle, and I, I wish I had written that down, but I didn't. But I think it was Aristotle that says, our nature hates a vacuum. And what that means is we can't just tell people, don't think about something. We've got to say, think about this instead of that. If I tell you, don't think of a green monkey, boom. I didn't program y'all. You know, boom, it popped in your head. Especially men are more visual thinkers than women. So, boom, green monkey popped. Don't think about a green monkey. Don't do it. Well, boom, it, you can't help it. So, I've got to say, don't think about a green monkey. Think about a purple poodle. Okay? Some of you are still stuck on the green monkey. That's all right. <clears throat> it happens. Sometimes you just get stuck on a green monkey. Write that down. Um, <laughs> don't write that down. So anyway, <clears throat> eat this, not that. Think about this, don't think about that. Live this way, don't live that way. That's exactly what we're going to talk about this morning as we look at Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Now listen, I want you all to hear what I just said. We're going to finish a chapter of Romans in three weeks. Come on. Come on. I wanted to break this up into two or three messages, but the thought pattern is just too coherent and it works so well together. So if you would stand as we read the Bible together, we're going to read Romans 13 verses 8 through 14, which will finish chapter 13. It was a short chapter. Okay, I get it. 
But we stand out of reverence to the Word. Collectively, the treasure together, receiving the treasure of God's Word. And we read thusly, starting in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let me pray. God, this is a glorious feast that you've prepared for us today in your word. Give us a capacity to receive it by the power of your Spirit. Give us a capacity to enjoy it by the power of your Spirit. And most of all, God, give us the ability to live it out by the power of your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much. Thank you you very much. So we will start. Actually, what we're going to do is we're going to take verses 8 through 10 initially. Um, We're going to take those three verses as one chunk because they're pretty much a self-contained thought. Again, I wanted to just spend this week on these three verses, but we're persevering. We're going to finish Romans August, maybe? Can you believe it? Don't hold me to that. But anyway, verses 8 through 10, let me read them, then we'll go back through them. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Hmm. Some good stuff there. First, what are we going to do? We're going to re-establish context, okay? Because this is not just... uh, an island of a passage. This is in a body of work. This is in the whole book of Romans. Particularly, we've kind of turned a corner in chapter 12. We spent 20 months in Romans 1 through 11 establishing doctrine, Asian station, the things that Will was talking about this morning, and seeing who God is, what God's done for us. God, 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 all through chapters 1 through 11. But then when we got to chapter 12, like I said, it was like, like there was a turning, like there was a, a, a almost a, a throwing it into finding first gear, catching speed for us and what we're supposed to do. Now a whole lot of the focus is you, 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 you. So anybody remember what we talked about last week? Or have you tried to forget it? <laughs> huh? Anybody awake last week? Authority, okay? Honoring, respecting, being subject to the governing authorities. Okay? What about the week before that? I'm going to test you this morning. You didn't know there was a quiz, did you? The week before that was that list of 18 commands that we went through in verses 10 through 21 of chapter 12. 
And those were more practical nuts and bolts of what it looks like to be a Christian with other Christians, what it looks like to be a Christian with those outside the church, and what it looks like to be a Christian even with our enemies. So now let me push the envelope a little further. What about the week before that? You're like, are you kidding me? No, it wasn't gifts, but that was a good guess. Last, the, that week, which would have been three weeks ago, was the single verse. Let love be genuine or without hypocrisy, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good. And if you'll remember back in that message, if you were here, if you weren't here, this is what that message was about. Chapter 12, verse 9 let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to that which is good, was setting the stage for the rest of those commands, those 18 commands. The main thrust was, let love be genuine. That was the command. Everything else was saying how to do that. By giving food to your enemy, by rejoicing with those who rejoice and such. Those are ways that we can let love be genuine. So the main command reaching three weeks back was, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine by abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good. And then we saw the commands, more examples. And now today, we're going to talk about love again. In saying, owe no one anything except to love one another. Which makes good sense overall, but, but what about last week? How does that fit into all this? Last week when we talked about the governing authorities. Love, 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 love. Authorities, love. Hmm? It was like Paul just got off on a rabbit trail and corrected himself and came back. Some people say that's just a little parenthesis that really isn't in the context, and I think they're wrong to say that. We ended chapter 12 by saying we are to overcome evil by doing good, and then we launched into the whole authority deal. And we said that it makes sense there, this was last week, it made sense coming out of that context because the end of chapter 12 was referring to not avenging yourselves, but leaving room for God's wrath, which was shared with who? God's wrath is shared with the governing authorities. But how does all of that tie back into the thought of love and what we're looking at today? Well, look at verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, tie that into verse 7. I'm going to read 7 and 8 together. This is the end of the authority passage and the beginning of today's passage. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now when you read it together, it makes pretty good sense, doesn't it? Okay, so Paul wasn't off on a tangent with the authority stuff. Okay? It's really got perfect continuity. Especially when you remember that love is the overall context of the thought going back to chapter 12 verse 9. We are talking about love. And I would add, even our honoring and respecting the governing authorities is to be done in love. Not in biting our tongues and trying to be nice and not say something we shouldn't say. But submitting in love to the governing authorities as to the Lord. So, that's context. So we go back to 8 to 10. Okay. So we're clear where we've been and where we're going. 
Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, let me say something real quick here about verse 8. The command to owe no one anything except to love each other is not given in the context of financial management. The Bible has plenty to say about the folly of debt, but this is not one of those instructions. Now, are there justifications for not going in debt? Sure there are, but this is not one of them. Proverbs is full of the warnings there, and we won't get into that this morning. And I just want to say that because we're coming out of the command to pay taxes and revenues to whom they are due, and to give respect and honor to whom, do, whom who it is due. Then Paul says to owe no one anything except to love each other. Listen, as Bible-believing, Bible-loving people, we have to keep the Scripture in its context. If you take Scripture out of context, you can justify anything you want to do. And we are not those people. We will not be those people. We will let the context determine what the Scripture means. And you say, you say that all the time. Yes, and I will say that all the time. We are not one-verse Christians. We are Bible-believing Christians, the whole thing. So, again, I'm not saying people are wrong to say, well, the Bible says to owe no one anything except to love each other, so we shouldn't be in debt. They're not wrong. They're just not right in the context. Okay? So I'm not dogging Dave Ramsey. I, I, I love Dave Ramsey. I think he's good. I think it's good principles, but I think he's wrong to use this verse as that justification. I'm done with that. Okay, I'll move on. Okay? So we come out of the command to pay taxes and revenues to whom they are due, give respect and honor to whom they are due. Then he says, owe no one anything except to love each other. Don't be in debt in that it puts you at a deficit in life. If you owe someone money, pay it. If you owe the bank for your car, pay the bank on the bank's terms. or faster if possible. If you have borrowed something from someone... Give it back to them. Don't live owing anyone something that you can pay them for or pay them back for. Except, the text says, to love each other. Don't owe, one, don't owe anyone anything except to love each other. Now what does that mean? It means that love is a debt that we will always be in. Always. We are always indebted to love one another and the governing authorities and our neighbor, which we'll see today. You will never get out of debt to love people. Owe no one anything except to love each other. You are in perpetual indebtedness to give love to other people. That's what it means. At 12 o'clock... You're in debt. At 3 in the afternoon, you're in debt. 3.05, in debt. Midnight, debt. I owe love to other people. There will never be a point where you don't owe it to others to love them. And this is not emotions or feelings of love only, but it's also the doing of love. This word is a present active verb, which means as long as it is now, we are to owe each other love. Now? Now. 
I think you get the point. And we owe that to each other and to the governing authorities and our enemies and our neighbors. Owe no one anything except to love each other. And then he throws in this statement, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, what? We spent 11 chapters, 20 months, understanding, grasping the fact that we cannot fulfill the law. Right? That's the point of chapters 1 through 11. You cannot. No flesh will be justified in the sight of God. No flesh will justify itself. No one will stand in God's presence and boast and say, I did it. I did it. So, we actually even saw that we died to the law so that we could be joined to another. That was chapter 7 of Romans. We saw that the law was added to increase transgressions. So aren't we supposed to be done with the law? And the answer to that is yes. But the simplest view of this is that we aren't obligated to keep the law to earn our salvation. But the law itself is not a bad thing. Galatians 3.21 Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But we know, right, that our righteousness comes from what? Faith in Christ. That's the only way we are made righteous. The only way. That's the theme of this whole book. Romans, how to be made right with God. Point two of our outline was justification by faith, the means for being right with God. So the law can't save us, but the law is not bad. It's not our enemy. Our righteousness comes from faith in Christ. So we've got to make sure we understand what Paul's talking about here in verse 8 when he talks about the law. What does it mean that we fulfilled the law? Sometimes law refers to the first five books of the Bible as a whole, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Sometimes. Sometimes the law refers to the Levitical principles that are laid out. How to cut the cow up, what to do with the dung, that kind of stuff. It's exciting. But here, Paul pretty much explicitly tells us what law he's referring to. Verse 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if we want to know how to love other people and fulfill the law, what's he talking about? He's talking about the Ten Commandments, specifically. The law given on two tablets of stone that Moses carried down the mountain, crushed because he was mad, went back up the mountain to get two more sets that he had to write himself. That law, the Ten Commandments, that's the law that he's referring to here. And he says any other commandment. Specifically, though, he deals with the section of the Ten Commandments that have to do with our dealings with other people, right? Adultery, murder, stealing, covetousness. These are things that we are not to do in relationship to other people. So if we're thinking about fulfilling this law, these laws, which we should, we, we, we're not under the law, right? You kill people? You covet? You steal? No, of course you don't. You've got a moral compass in you. 
namely the Holy Spirit who says this is wrong. So we should want to fulfill this law. Right? Yes. Yes. So if we're thinking about fulfilling this law, these laws, Paul says they're all summed up in the word or the phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. They came and asked Jesus what the greatest command was and he asked this guy and the guy said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second is like it, Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if we want to know how to love other people and fulfill the law against mistreating others, we should love them as we love who? Yourself. What? 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 We should love other people as we love ourselves. So we don't do the things those thou shalt nots tell us not to do. But a quick question here. What about this loving as we love ourselves thing? Let me, let me say first of all, he doesn't say love yourself so that you can love other people. It's not a command to love yourself. Right? It's not a command to love yourself and then love other people that way. I've been doing professional therapy. And I need it. I've been doing it for over a year now. And psychological models will say, you've got to accept yourself, you've got to love yourself before you can love other people properly. So learn how to love yourself. Abraham Maslow, this hierarchy of needs that points to self-actualization as the pinnacle of human existence. Be the best you you can be and love you. That's not what this is saying. This is not pop psychology. This is not psychological drivel. He's not commanding us to love ourselves. He's telling us, you love yourself. (laughs) The Bible sees no such commands or thoughts telling us to love ourselves. In the Bible, when the Old Testament table of law and in the New Testament, when Jesus, Paul, and James all quote this verse, and they do, when they do that, it is a given. It's an understood truth that people... All people love themselves. You say, well, no, I know people that don't really like themselves. No, you don't. Let me give you an example here. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. You're like, okay, but listen to this. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Now what does that say? No one ever hated his own flesh. Who's no one? Nobody. No one. And you may be sitting here this morning and you're thinking, well, I don't really like myself. And maybe you feel like you don't, but that not liking yourself is liking yourself. Now I'm not trying to trip you up with words here, okay? Listen to me. We really do. We really do, all of us, love ourselves. Let something come towards your eye. What are you going to do? You're going to blink. You are hardwired with instincts to protect yourself. And you nourish and you cherish your flesh. You say, no, I don't. I starve my body or I make myself throw up or I cut myself or I'm even thinking about killing myself. And those things are awful. They're terrible. But they are a form of self-love. It's a twisted, messed up self-love, but it is a self-love. 
You see the focus on self? I will hurt myself. I hate myself. I'll kill myself. What's the focus on? It's on yourself. I can't take the pain anymore, so I'll do something about it. That's loving yourself. Again, it's twisted and it's messed up. And that's where we all go when we get introspective and get focused on ourselves. It's where we will all go if we get focused on ourselves in a polluted and corrupted way. And I'm not saying you're bad to feel that way. I'm saying there's a better way. There's a better way to love yourself. And that's what we'll talk about today. Don't love yourself like that. Love yourself a different way. Again, not condemnation. It's just a universal truth for them and those who think, I like myself, or I love myself, or I'll get what I want for myself. That's the way we all live. Okay? And, you, and again, I know there are reservations. I know there are hesitations. And I know right now some of you are forming arguments in your head against what I'm saying. But we let the Bible determine what's true. And the Bible says no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. We may do it in a weird way, but no one ever hated his own flesh. But then back in the command in Romans, we're supposed to love our neighbor like we love ourselves. So there's a right way to love ourselves. Love our neighbor like we love ourselves, universally. And if we love others like we love ourselves, we fulfill the law. That's the summation of it. Verse 10 gives us that summation. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Medical professionals, helping professionals, the first rule of these professions is do no harm. And it should be the first law of the Christian life too. Do no harm. Do no wrong. And in doing so... We love other people and fulfill the law. So that's 8 through 10. Foundational stuff. Verse 11. Look at this. We turn the corner now. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, I think it's easy to miss the connection between this and what we've just looked at. Love, love, love. Love your neighbor. Don't do wrong to your neighbor. Besides this. Seems a little disjointed, but it's not really. Keep in mind, we are talking about loving and living a life that is patently Christian. We've looked at the how to do it to this point by not doing harm. Now we transition to the why. The word besides at the beginning of verse 11 is the Greek word kai, K-A-I. Now, are you ready for this? I, I don't get to say this much. That word kai is used 9,280 times in the New Testament. 9,280 times. Do you know why? Because it's translated as and 8,182 of those times. So I think it's pretty safe to say we can translate it as and. So love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is a summation or the... Fulfillment of the law, and this you know, and you know the time. Besides this and this, love is the fulfillment of the law, and you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Let me connect that, okay? Are you ready? We're supposed to love each other, we're supposed to fulfill the law by loving our neighbor, and you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. It's high time 
that we love our neighbor and fulfill the law. Now, and. Fulfill the law and know that it's time to do this. That's what it's saying. High time that we love our neighbor and fulfill the law. But, but do we know the time? Don't look at your watch. Don't look back at the clock on the wall. That's not what this is talking about. Do we know the time? The word for time is kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S, and it means a measure of time, a larger or smaller portion of time, a fixed and definite time, the time when things are brought to crisis, the decisive epoch waited for, opportune or seasonable time, the right time, a limited period of time. Love your neighbor, fulfill the law, because we are at a crisis point. We are at a fixed, allotted amount of time in which we are called to do this specifically. Know the time. Understand that we can't wait anymore for the world to get better. As the modernists used to think back in the 1900s. It's weird to say back in the 1900s, by the way. That feels weird. The modernists thought society is increasingly getting better and the, the roaring 20s and everything was wonderful and yippee skippy and then World War I. And then World War II. And then the Korean War. Then the Vietnam War. And the 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of man. Oops, we're not getting better. We're devolving. We're going backwards. We are barbarians. I mean, really, we are. And we're all concerned with ourselves. And here, the Holy Spirit through Paul says, know the time. Know the time that we are at a crisis point and what you are called to do now, Christian, is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Here, times, knowing the times means it's high time, an opportune time, a limited time. And that time, those times, is the hour for us to do what? To wake from sleep. What's that mean? It means it's time to get up out of the bed and get to work. Get busy. What are we supposed to be doing? Working. Working doing what? We're supposed to be working, loving our neighbor, fulfilling the law, letting love be genuine, abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, blessing those who curse you, rejoicing with those that rejoice, weeping with those who weep, feeding our enemies, being in subjection to the governing authorities, giving respect and honor to whom it is due. Wake up and get to work. Now is the time. The hour has come for you, Christian, for me to wake up our sleep. What was it the Japanese commander said after they bombed Pearl Harbor? I'm afraid that we have awakened a sleeping giant. Oh, to hear the halls of hell echo with that thought. Oh no, we have awakened a sleeping giant. The church is awake. And they're mad. And they're loving people like crazy. It's time to wake up. Wake up from your sleep. We'll talk a lot more about that in application. Wake up and work. Get busy. 
This reference to waking from sleep sounds a lot like 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 10. Let me read that. We'll look at part of it now and part of it later. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. And that's a mouthful. A mouthful of stuff there. In it, the darkness is where those the darkness is where those who live, the darkness is where those live, there we go, who will be surprised by Jesus coming. That's where those people live. They live in the darkness. To them, his coming will be like a thief in the night. They're saying that they are safe and secure, and then destruction comes in the form of the judgment of God against them. But you, Paul says to the Thessalonians, are not in darkness, and that coming won't surprise you. So don't sleep, but wake up and be sober. People get drunk and sleep at night, but since we are of the day, we are to be sober, which means calm and collected with an understanding of what is going on around you. And let me ask you a quick question. Do you understand what's going on around you? Are you looking at the world through a lens that says, I understand what's going on here? Or do you throw up your hand and say, this is nuts. I can't understand what's going on here. These people are crazy. I'm crazy. We're all crazy. And that's true. But we're supposed to understand what's going on. Why? Because we have a biblical framework to put everything we look at through. If you have not, you should... Listen to, subscribe to, whatever. Al Mohler has a daily podcast called The Briefing. And I, I, I don't hesitate at all to recommend it to you because what he does is he looks at headlines through a biblical perspective and says this is how we should act in light of this. It's about 15, 20 minutes a day. Invaluable. I cannot place a value on it. Listen to it. Al Mohler, The Briefing, Monday through Friday. Because we're supposed to understand the times. We're supposed to know what's going on around us and know how to respond and react. But do we? Oh, poor us. I'm afraid that's what I hear more often than not. Why is this happening, God? Why are you withdrawing your hand of favor upon America? Why are our rights being stripped away? What? Really? If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they hated me, they'll hate you. They hated me first, so they're going to hate you too. Wake up and meet the hate head on with what? With love. Meet the governing authorities with love. Meet that neighbor who gets on your nerves so bad you can't stand it because they're always looking out their window at you. Love you. Mean it. 
<laughs> Don't sleep. Don't walk through life asleep. Oh, just letting things happen to me and poor me. And I'd rather just be back in bed. Wake up. Wake up. Be sober. Understand what's going on around you. And we'll be back to this First Thessalonians passage in a minute. It's too similar not to reference. But now, 1311. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Why? Whoa, now wait a minute. Now get a hold of this. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Oh. Oh. I really have always seen this in a negative light, but there's nothing negative about this. I've always seen it as, oh, wake up. It's, things are getting tough. You better get tough. No, no, wake up because salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. As we live between Jesus' two comings, the first one as a baby, the second one as the ascended glorified King, in the already but not yet of the kingdom of God, we have to know what time it is. And what time is it? And why are we awake from our sleep? For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We were saved in eternity past. We were saved at a certain point in time. We are being saved right now and we will be finally saved in heaven completely, fully. That salvation, that final salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. That should make us go, yes! I'm closer than I've ever been. And as the day drags on and draws on and we walk into the glorious noon of this day, we say it's closer than it's ever been. And we go, yes. Not, oh no, what's going to happen? We're going, yes. Yes. I'm closer. Tomorrow, if it comes, we're closer than we were today. Anybody get excited about vacation? Anybody get excited about getting married? As the day drew closer, you got more and more excited. And woo! Butterflies, and you're walking off the ground, you're like this for you. I just, as it gets closer and closer and closer, what do you do? You get more excited. Where is that in American Christianity? We're getting closer. He could come back today. Well, no, he couldn't. He's got to go through this. No, don't, don't, don't. Don't do that. He could come back right now. And we're closer now than we were five seconds ago. So we draw strength from that. We rejoice in that. Wake up with that. The alarm clock goes off. Today's the day. For what? Today's the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it because I'm closer to salvation. Now, am I saying we're not saved? No, we are saved. We have been saved. We are saved. We're being saved. We will be saved. That final salvation is closer than it's ever been. Wake up every day with that. Work knowing that. Verse 12 gets even better. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Woo. In keeping with the rejoicing mindset. Listen to me, church. Listen to me, believer. Listen to me, Christian. The night is far gone. Far gone. Anybody remember the night? I remember the night. Sin, shame, guilt, hopelessness, fear. Far gone. Far gone. 
Romans 8 is true. And since it is, the night is far gone. I'm not going back there. I can't get back there. The night, the despair is far gone. Now am I saying that Christians can't despair? No. But I'm saying when we preach the gospel to ourselves, when we preach the truth to ourselves, we look and we say, we've been delivered out of that. And it is far gone. That's not where I'm at anymore. By the grace of God. The night, Christian, is over for us. We are not those who walk in the night. We walk in the light. And that night is not just gone, it's far gone. Our sins and our pasts are way back there in the rearview mirror and objects in this mirror are not closer than they appear. The day is what is at hand. So then what? So then let us cast off the works of darkness, which what are they? We'll talk about that in a second. And do what? Put on the armor of light. This is where we go back to 1 Thessalonians 5. Listen to 8 through 10. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's closer than it's ever been, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live, and live with Him. Earlier in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, he said, those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Those who sleep, slumber. They do that at night. That's the deeds of the night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and let us put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. And then verse 11 says, and I'll have it up here, Therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Here Paul references the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Faith, love, and hope are our armor. And Ephesians talks about some more armor, but this is where we're at right now. And where do they come from? Where does this armor come from? From salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Our Savior is our armor. And we'll see in Romans 13, 14 that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our armor. Let's go ahead and look at 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. This is back in Romans, sorry. Romans 13, 13 through 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The thought pattern of walking in the day, not night, continues here as we are called to walk properly as in the daytime. So what's that look like? First, what it doesn't look like. It's not that, right? Don't walk in orgies and drunkenness. Don't walk in sexual immorality and sensuality. Don't walk in quarreling and jealousy. Now that's a lot of knots. But the main point is that we don't do what those in the world are doing to try to please themselves. Sounds a lot like the deeds of the flesh of Galatians 5, 19-21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what the flesh does. These are what the flesh enjoy. 
Paul says back in Romans 13, to not walk that way. Somebody's singing Aerosmith in their head, aren't they? You're like, I wasn't, but I am now. Thank you very much. Don't walk this way according to the flesh. Don't conduct your life in the deeds of the flesh. But, according to verse 14 of Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Anybody ever gone on a diet and you throw all the junk food away because you know if it's there, I'm going to eat it. Or you try to hide it from yourself. (laughs) I'm talking to myself, y'all. Oh, I forgot those were there. Actually, I'm thinking about it the whole time. I'm like, those are there, those are there, those are there, those are there. Make no provision for the flesh. Don't try to fool yourself and say, I can, I can keep this here and it'll be all right. No, you can't. You can't keep it there. You've got to get rid of it. You've got to throw it away. You've got to burn it. Bury it. Bury the shovel you buried it with. Make no provision for the flesh literally means don't even think about a possibility of keeping something like that around. That's why we have to crucify the flesh with its desires, is what Scripture says in another place. Because the flesh enjoys these things. Enjoys it. But we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means. That, that gets back to the, what I mentioned earlier, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ thought from before. And when we put Him on, and we put Him on time and time and time again, over and over, it's a conscious decision every day. You say, well, am I not saved? Do I not have Jesus? You do. But you have to make the conscious decision day after day, I'm putting on Christ today. I'm putting on Christ today. I'm awake. I'm in the light. Salvation's nearer than it's ever been, and I'm putting on Christ today. And I'm not making provision for the flesh and the lusts that are there. Put on the Lord Christ. Put on the Lord Christ. Time and time again, over and over. And when we put Him on, time and time again, over and over, that enables us to live a life where we make no provision, give no opportunity for the flesh and its desires to fulfill them, and thus walk in darkness. Walking in Christ is to walk in the light. I love these verses, 1 John 1, 6-7. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But... If we walk in the light as He is in the light, if we put Christ on, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Man, that's good stuff right there. That is walking in the light, not darkness. And when we do that, what happens? We have fellowship with one another. How many times have you seen somebody who starts to sin? They lose fellowship. Well, I'm not going this week. Those people are just judgmental. I don't like the way they sing. I don't like that guy that talks so much. We find justifications for not coming and we lose fellowship with one another. That's why biblical discipline is about excluding from fellowship. Because we need this. When we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Now, we've said a lot, and I don't know that you get the full orb of what we've talked about, but let me try to tie it up as we look at application points. And what we're going to do here, we talked about the eat this, not that thing to begin with. So what we're going to look at is what should we do and what shouldn't we do? How should we live? How should we not live? 
And there's several of these. I didn't even try to make it memorable. You're just going to have to, I don't know what you're going to have to do. Write it down, go back, listen to the recording, whatever. The first thing, do this, not this, is we serve by love, not by law. Now this wasn't explicit in the text, but I think it's important to note. How do we do all this stuff? By trying harder and doing better and getting a list of commands to keep? No! Hopefully you know that's not true. We don't work hard to try to please God. We don't work hard to try to love other people. We have to know the love that God has shown us and then respond to that love in the power of His Spirit by serving Him. And the way we serve Him is evidenced in our loving our neighbor. We love God. We love our neighbor. We don't have a list of commands that we try to keep to make all this happen. And how is it done? It's done in the power of the Spirit, not in fleshly strivings. Be still and know that I am God. We serve by love, not by the law. We serve in the Spirit, not by the letter. We can't keep the law perfectly, but we can fulfill it by loving others. That's what Paul said. So that's the first one. We serve by love and not by law. second one is love. Now this one's long. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't love yourself as an end in and of itself. That's a lot of selves, isn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't love yourself as an end in and of itself. You're going to love yourself, but that love shouldn't end with yourself. Use that love, understand that love, and translate it into loving others. Piper brought this up perfectly, and I, I wish I'd quote, I'd quote him later, but not on this. He says, if you're hungry, understand that people get hungry. So feed people. If you get lonely, you know what? That means other people get lonely too. So let these things, these self-loves, which are not wrong, everybody gets hungry. Right? But use that hunger to say, how can I serve other people better knowing that people get hungry? How can I serve other people better who are lonely by knowing that I get lonely myself? So that self-love points us to other people. So love your neighbor as yourself. Don't love yourself as an end in and of itself. You reach out and you serve and you bless others as these needs, these longings urge you on. Don't just think me, 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 I, I, I. Think of the needs that are around you and pour yourself out to bless others. You're going to love yourself. You may as well know how to use that love to benefit others. Serve by love, not by law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't love yourself as an in and of itself. Third one, serve Christ, not the flesh. This is a lot like the first point, which was to serve by love, not by law. But here, we serve a greater master, capital M master, and that master is Christ instead of serving the flesh. Here we see that our true motivation in all things is to serve Jesus our Lord. Colossians 3, 23 through 24. We're almost done, y'all. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever situation you're in. Grace and joy in China are serving the Lord Christ as they submit to the governing authorities and as they civilly disobey when they have to in order to preach the gospel. They're serving Christ. 
When you're at your job every day, you're serving Christ. Kids, when you're at home and you're honoring and obeying your father and your mother, you're serving Christ. As you're here blessing each other, who are you serving? You're serving Christ. And listen, that flesh can rise up and say, boy, check you out, you're doing good. Or you know what? They don't really recognize everything that you do. You should, you should be recognized. You go, wait a second, I'm not serving you, flesh. I'm serving the Lord Christ. That's motivation. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And knowing that we're serving the Lord Christ makes it so much easier to say no to the flesh. You will pursue the greatest affection that you have. Your flesh cries out for attention and affection, asking you to fulfill its desires, and it will be so until you see Jesus face to face when we're finally saved. But we know from Romans 8, 12, and 13, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. You're like, oh, we're going to be debtors. Who are we debtors to? For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So I'm not a debtor to the body. I'm not a debtor to the flesh. Who am I a debtor to? I'm a debtor to my brother. I owe them love. I'm a debtor to my neighbor. I owe them love. I'm not a debtor to Christ because I could never repay back what he's given. Oh, to grace, how great a getter. Daily I'm constrained. I don't owe grace anything. I don't owe grace everything. But I do owe my neighbor and my brother love. And I don't owe my flesh a thing. Not a thing. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And while we don't live as debtors to Jesus, we do serve Him in order to pay the debt of love that we owe to our neighbors. So that will serve Christ, not the flesh. Three more. Stay with me. This is my favorite one, and it's not mine. It's John Piper's. Wear armor, not pajamas. You're like, now what? It's what Piper said. I'm going to quote him. The way we live and what we wear follows from the time. The day is at hand. So then, take off your pajamas. Take off your deadly sleepwalking clothes and put on, put on what? Paul chooses a word that implies that the Christian life is not just a wakeful life, but a wakeful battle. I'm continuing to quote Piper here. He says, So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. While we were sleepwalking in unbelief, oblivious to the reality of Christ, we walked in darkness and the clothing we wore was works of darkness. Now God awakens us from the stupor of unbelief. We embrace Christ as Savior and Lord and treasure of our lives and we put on armor, weaponry. Because the Christian life is a battle, and he finishes the quote this way, to be awake is to be at war. I can't do anything to make that any better than it is. Wear armor, not pajamas. Those who sleep, sleep at night. But that ain't us. Next, do this, not that. Live awake, not asleep. That may sound silly to say, but really, how many of us are sleepwalking through this life? when we should be wide awake to what is going on around us. Wake up! Ephesians 5, 15-17 Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Look carefully how you walk. Be wise. Use your time well. Why? Because the days are evil. I want to ask you a very pointed question in this application point. How purposeful are you in your life? 
Do you have a life that is marked by mission instead of chance? Are you living on purpose or are you just letting whatever happens happen? Are you proactive or are you just going with the flow? Do you look different or are you just like everybody else? The command is wake up. Wake up, Christian, and live awake. Get out of those pajamas, to refer back to Piper's point in the previous application, and put your armor on. Live awake, not asleep. And finally, last point. Walk in the light of day and not in the darkness of night. Don't do what people do at night. Drunkenness and orgies and sensuality. Sleeping. Gratifying themselves and their flesh. Don't do that. Walk in the light of day. Be children of the day. Get to work. Be busy. Be purposeful. And I can't help, I'm going to finish, I can't help but think of Keith Green as I've thought about this. Anybody familiar with Keith Green? He had a song called Asleep in the Light. And I'm going to finish by reading that song. You're welcome, I'm not singing it. As I think about the call to walk in the light of day and not in the darkness of night, this is what the song says. Do you see? Do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend the job is done. Oh, bless me, Lord. Bless me, Lord. You know, it's all I ever hear. No one aches. No one hurts. No one even sheds one tear. But he cries. He weeps. He bleeds. And he cares for your needs. And you just lay back and keep soaking it in. Oh, can't you see it's such sin? Because he brings people to your door and you turn them away as you smile and say, God bless you. Be at peace. And all heaven just weeps. Because Jesus came to your door and you left him out on the streets. Open up, open up and give yourself away. You see the need, you hear the cries, so how can you delay? God is calling and you are the one, but like Jonah you run. He told you to speak, but you keep holding it in. Can't you see it's such sin? And here you go. The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and you, you can't even get out of bed. Oh, Jesus rose from the dead. Come on, get out of your bed. How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend the job is done. You close your eyes and pretend the job is done. Don't close your eyes. Don't pretend the job. Wake up and get busy. Get fighting. Get fighting mad. And get fighting mad enough to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Preach the gospel with words and with your life. Open up and give yourself away. Walk in the light of the day and not in the darkness of night. Let's pray. God, I am in no way, shape, or form looking to manipulate people by guilt. 
And I know that's not your mode of operation either. God, motivate us by love as we think about the table, as we think about the cross, as we think about an empty tomb, as we think about a risen, exalted, glorified Savior who had emptied himself at one point and took the form of a servant to the point of death, even death upon a cross. And may we know that the words that he said are still valid today, that unless a man denies himself, takes up his cross and follows me, he cannot be my disciple. And we respond, God, not in guilt or shame. Those things are gone. The night is far gone. We respond in love to who you are and what you've done for us. And we show that love to our neighbor as we understand that we owe him, we owe her a debt of love that we will never get out of. Help us to open up and give ourselves away. Help us to wake up and not sleep in the light, but instead shine your light. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Help us, God. Enable us. Empower us to love greatly in this crooked and perverse generation among whom we shine as lights in the darkness. We ask for your help and your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction and we'll be done. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great day. Stay and eat with us if you can.